MSW Media. I signed an order appointing Jack Smith. And nobody knows you. And those who say Jack is a fanatic. Mr. Smith is a veteran career prosecutor. Wait, what law have I broken? The events leading up to and on January 6th. Classified documents and other presidential records. You understand what prison is? Send me to jail! Hello and welcome to episode 35 of Jack, the podcast for all things special counsel. It is Sunday, July 30th, 2023. I'm Allison Gill. And I'm Andy McCabe. We all had our eyes uh, this week, Allison, on D.C. and Georgia, right? So we're looking at D.C., we're looking at Georgia, what's going to happen? And all of a sudden, special counsel hits Donald Trump and Walt Nauta with superseding charges in Miami in the classified docs case. Uh, and he adds a third defendant to that case, the former or maybe still head of maintenance at Mar-a-Lago, a gentleman named Carlos de Oliveira. Yep, the pool guy. Um, you'll know him as the guy who drained the pool. <laughs> we talk about him a lot. Um, Trump is in legal jeopardy in so many jurisdictions. We really need to keep our heads on a swivel. Uh, it could come up. Michigan. Totally. Miami. I'm expecting something from Arizona. Oh, wait. New York? Okay. Yeah. We should do a roulette wheel with <laughs> all the different locations. It's like spin it once every uh, every podcast. Just with with right. seven different states around there. Yeah. Where will he be indicted next? Bingo. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we really got to keep our heads on us. Well, something cool. We're going to be joined later today by Brian Greer. He's a former associate general counsel at the CIA. He's the SEPA expert for his segment, Under Seal. And we're going to discuss these new charges and how they might impact the trial schedule, right? Set for May of 2024. That's right along with some new information on the current SEPA schedule and filings from both parties, including Donald wanting to be able to discuss classified documents outside of a skiff, which just... I, I can't wait till we get into this one. I just, uh, um, my jaw is still on the floor from reading that. Yeah. Uh, but once, once we cover all that, we'll go over to the investigation into the disruption of the peaceful transfer of power in 2020. Um, we did not get an indictment in that case this week, which I think some people thought we would get. Uh, but it is looming large, uh, truly, as Trump's attorneys met with Jack Smith in D.C. Uh, on Thursday to advocate for their client. Yeah, we were waiting for that one. We were waiting. For, that's one of the signs, right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> of the, four the forthcoming indictment. Uh, we also have some details about prosecutors examining a meeting that occurred in February of 2020, way before the election, about election security. And we have a tranche of documents that Jack Smith has been able to obtain recently from the architects of the fraudulent elector scheme and uh, a few new witness meetings with prosecutors, including Trump lawyer Bernie Carrick and Governor Brian Kemp. But Andy, let's begin with the big news that took us all by big surprise. News. That's right. Out of Miami, the superseding indictments in the classified documents case. Uh, if you want to read a really succinct three-page, two-and-a-half-page description of what's different from the original indictment versus the new superseding indictment. There is a filing I have posted on Twitter. It is basically the DOJ saying that we aren't going to need any, we aren't going to have to push the trial date back uh, for these reasons because, these, you know, we can keep the same schedule that we've already got. But he goes through and in less than a page and a half, he's just so talented at, the, at, the, yeah. at being succinct. Uh, and he bottom lines it. And he says, basically, here are the differences. But, we'll, you know, we can talk about them now. The new charges, there's new charges. 
the headline that grabbed us all was that a defendant has been added. Somebody new has been indicted in the documents case. When real headline here is Trump has been hit with superseding indictments. Yeah. I mean, the, he- the headline should be how you go from bad to much, much worse, because what he got hit with and how he got hit with them really changes the texture of his position in this case. He was already looking at a formidable, serious case with a lot of significant uh, uh, inculpatory evidence. And now, oh my gosh, when you add what he's now looking at, it, it, it's gone from bad to worse. Yeah. We've got four charges for Trump, four new charges for Trump. We have four charges for the new defendant, Dolivera, and I believe we've got uh, three new charges for Walt Nada. So let's talk about this because now Trump is up to 40 felony counts in this, in this indictment. <laughs> 40 and rising. <laughs> we have conspiracy to obstruct justice, which is 1512 section K. And this is for Trump, Nada, and De Oliveira. They attempted to delete security camera footage. Oof. We also not have- Not a good idea. Nada. Not a good idea. Walt. Not a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> we have- Altering, destroying, or concealing an object, which is 1512B2B. And that is for Trump, Nauda, and Dolivera. They knowingly and corruptly persuaded and attempted to persuade employee number four to delete security footage. So not only do we have the conspiracy to delete it, we have them attempting to alter and destroy it by persuading this guy, this IT guy named Tavares, to delete the security footage to prevent it from being provided to the grand jury. And then we have corruptly altering, destroying, mutilating, or concealing a document, record, or other object, 1512C1. This is also for Trump, Nada, and Delavera. requested um, employee number four, Tavares, to delete security camera footage to prevent it from being provided to a grand jury. So right. those are the three uh, biggies. They all have to do with that sort of conspiracy to, to alter, delete, destroy, maim, flood, whatever, the <laughs> security <laughs> footage. And then we have a separate false statement charge, 1001 for D. Oliveira. For lying to the FBI, bald-faced lying about moving the boxes with Walt Nada. He was the guy who helped Walt move the boxes back and forth. And he'll be arraigned tomorrow, Monday morning. And That's kind of a companion charge to the one Nada took, right? For the same thing. Lied in the interview, got it on tape, and now he's facing another serious charge. So Dalavera has got the same thing. He's looking at the same thing as Nada on that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then we have a whole new separate charge, the fourth charge for Trump. Uh, taking uh, 31 documents to 32. He's being charged for 32 documents under 793E under the Espionage Act. Uh, Jack Smith has added the Iran document, the Milley document, the one that he waved around at Bedminster. Now, he didn't charge him with dissemination. Uh, He just charged him with 793E, right? Retention. Um, is, is dissemination included? Could it be retention or dissemination under 793E or is that another provision of 793? I'd have to look back at the language of the statute. I think, I think probably for, um, well, I think he's, he's at least referring to them all as willful retention. It's just a little bit easier to keep them in the same bucket, but there's no question that this charge, unlike the other 31, there is clearly an evidentiary element of dissemination here because he's in the act of talking about it, describing it, waving it around, and, and potentially showing it physically to the folks who were in the room for that meeting. So it's it is a, it's a very, um, you know, again, already a big problem on his shoulders. But now that they've closed the circle, gotten the document itself, and, and charged it as its own separate count, 
um, they've made this, I think, this goes to number one on the list of serious counts of uh, willful retention. It's a real problem for him now. Yeah, and I'm looking up uh, Section E right now, and it is as I thought it was. It's either retention or willful communication, delivery, transmittal, or cause to be communicated, delivered, or transmitted, or attempts to communicate, deliver, transmit, or cause to be communicated, delivered, or transmitted to the to the, the same to any person not entitled to receive it, yeah. or willfully retains the same and fails to deliver it. So we don't know. I can't tell from this whether it's the transmittal, the showing it, the waving it around to a person who doesn't have the ability to see it, or if it's the retention here. But I don't, the language of transmittal, I don't think is in, is, appears. Well, you can understand how the law would kind of cover both of those eventualities, right? It's the Espionage Act after all. So the kind of primary thought here is people who take classified and then hand it off to a foreign government or to someone who uh, is paying them for it or or trying to possess it illegally. That's very different than someone who just takes the stuff and keeps it and refuses to give it back. That's like more of a straight up retention issue. Just from the evidence, uh, what the evidence is going to be able to show, you had 31 counts of retention, right? He had all the stuff. They asked for it back. He refused to give it back. He kept it. He tried to hide it so it wouldn't get returned. And then they found it at his house. This is the one charge where you have really solid evidence of dissemination, which is uh, what makes it more serious for him. Totally. And, and it's also just sort of, I mean, to have, you know, and I'm going to ask Brian about this too, um, but, you know, just to have it on tape. Uh, I mean, wh- that's like a prosecutor's dream just to have, just to totally. <laughs> have your totally. on tape saying, look, you know, we joke about how hard it is to get like a bribery charge, for for instance, right? We have, yeah. you, you have to basically say... Here, so-and-so, Senator so-and-so, this money I'm handing you is in exchange for this particular uh, legislation that I would like for you to vote yes on tomorrow at 3.30 p.m. Eastern time, you know. Right. And we actually, we, that's a joke, but we've. We have it in with this particular yeah. document. He's like, look at this. Isn't it cool? Oh, this is really, <laughs> I would like to show it to you, but it's really sensitive, confidential, it's secret. And I don't I have the ability to declassify this. If I was still president, I could do it, but now I can't. I mean, it's just crazy to have the defendant saying that in his own voice, and you're going to play that for the jury. We talked when this originally came up about how the defense could potentially file a motion to exclude the recording to, I just to keep it say, out. This, is, this makes that not possible. Yeah. I think it was a long shot to begin with, now it's absolutely <laughs> impossible. And originally, without the document, you weren't charging that specific event, essentially, that act of dissemination. So the, the defense could have come in and said, like, look, to play this recording, even though it is relevant in other ways, it's too inflammatory. It's more inflammatory than it is prejudicial, and therefore you should keep it out. I don't think they'd have a lot of success with that, but they could have made that argument. Now, no, it's directly relevant. It's the actual thing that they charged um, there's no way that that tape doesn't get played for the jury. And you're probably going to have multiple witnesses who take the stand and describe exactly what they saw, which may include the identifying the document itself. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that, too, because a, a couple of things here. First of all, going back with the trying to destroy and delete the security footage, that to me seems to bolster the entirety of the original indictment as far as corrupt intent goes. I mean, 
he might have been able to have a little bit, some sort of maybe peripheral defense. I mean, it was a pretty ironclad case. But now to to say, to have evidence, developed evidence that and witnesses to those conversations saying that we all tried to delete that security footage, it brings the whole corrupt intent to a whole new level, doesn't it? It really does. And that's why I made those comments at the beginning of uh, today's episode about going from bad to worse. Mm-hmm. What the new charges, particularly those involving the allegations of trying to destroy evidence. So we'll walk through the timeline in a minute, but he gets the subpoena for the surveillance video and immediately this effort is underway to get rid of it instead of turning it over as you're obligated to do. That introduces the specter of what we like to call guilty knowledge. People don't engage in the willful destruction of evidence unless they are afraid that that evidence is going to prove them guilty of having committed another crime. So it's where he could maybe have made claims about, I didn't know what was there, it was a mistake, it was inadvertent, I wasn't paying attention to it. I know it seems hard for any of those those defenses to be successful, but now having actively engaged in trying to destroy the evidence, you know, to obstruct the, the discovery of the obstruction, essentially. <laughs> yeah. It's just terrible for him. It makes him look horrible to the judge. I think it makes him a much less sympathetic defendant to the judge because judges do not look favorably on people who uh, destroy evidence and obstruct proceedings. So yeah, it's bad on many, many, many levels. Yeah, and I think it's um, worth noting here that that he's just being charged, they're just being charged collectively, the three of them, with the attempt to destroy, right? Right. They they don't have, they don't go here if they don't talk about in this uh, indictment that they actually did destroy uh, any of the surveillance footage or or held it back or anything like that. Uh, And that could be saved for future superseding indictments or might, they might just not be able to develop the evidence to to prove that beyond a reasonable doubt. But a lot of, I see a lot of cable news people talking about how, well, they must not have destroyed it because Jack Smith got it or Merrick Garland got it. And that's how they got the search warrant. But I I think it's important to note that there's been public reporting that there were gaps or glitches in the footage that caused subsequent subpoenas for the surveillance footage from the software company not from the Trump organization, but the software, the third-party software company, the parent company of this surveillance that has all of the surveillance footage. So, you know, I think possibly getting the footage from other properties would be fruit of the poison tree, but if you're specifically looking for gaps in tapes down at Mar-a-Lago, I think that that would help. And also, to that point, Trump said uh, to a radio show earlier today, and I'm reading the quote, They went after two fine employees yesterday, fine people. Uh, I don't think that the tapes were even, these were my tapes. We gave them to them. And they basically then said, that's not enough. I don't think we would have had to give it over. What stands out to me, Andy, is then they basically said, that's not enough. That sounds like he didn't fully comply with the subpoena. You know, there's, I think this is a great point because There have been, as you said, a lot of signals over the last couple of months that the special counsel team was not comfortable or satisfied with whatever they got. Now, I I 
I would, I'm guessing that the Trump team turned over something, but it also seems like when they reviewed what they received in response to the subpoena, there were some, for some collection of reasons, they felt like they hadn't been given the entire uh, pot, right? So that's when you see these reach out to the to the company that built that makes the software. There's all kinds of questions about the crazy draining of the pool, which I still think is a red herring, but never nonetheless. So this has clearly been a persistent issue for them, and they've now resolved it by claiming that there was at least an attempt to destroy the evidence or eliminate its its availability to be turned over as the law requires under the subpoena. Yeah, yeah, agreed. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. We have the timeline plot, the plot to the scheme to delete the security footage, um, the lies that Oliveras, De Oliveras told the FBI, and the loyalty conversation, which I think is also very important. So uh, everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first time lawyer, I wanna act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said... Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. All right, Allison, we are back. And now we're going to launch into that timeline of events that really kind of fleshes out this attempt to, uh, the allegation anyway, that they attempted to destroy the surveillance footage. Okay, so on page 27 of the indictment, for those of you who are reading along at home, uh, feel free, 
Uh, it's this new section called the attempt uh, to delete security camera footage. So on June 22nd, DOJ emailed a draft subpoena to the uh, to Trump's lawyers, um, and that subpoena, of course, requested the camera footage. I'm not sure why they would have sent a draft subpoena. I've never heard of that before. They've, they were real um, careful. Remember, the FBI didn't even want to do a search warrant. Yeah. I mean, I don't know why you wouldn't just wait until the subpoena was final and send that, but it may have been they wanted to put them on notice as early as possible so they would not go out and destroy evidence that they knew was about to be officially subpoenaed, but I'll put that aside. So June 23rd, the next day, Trump calls De Oliveira and they speak for 24 minutes. I like what Lisa Rubin said. She's like, he's the maintenance guy. They're not talking about the rhododendrons. <laughs> yeah, no, I bet they haven't had 24 minutes of phone calls in the last 20 years. But nevertheless, they have a record of telephone contact, which is interesting. Um, From two non-cooperators. Yeah, two non-cooperators. So it's possible they have phone records from Mar-a-Lago or possible they have phone records from Trump's in, you know, his individual cell phone. Um, it's also possible they have phone records from the other side of the call, the De Oliveira phone, or they have the phone itself. Remember, if it was a call on Signal or WhatsApp or something like that, you'd actually have to have the phone uh, to have a record of it. But either way, they have a record that they're going to use in court. So the next day, Friday, June 24th, DOJ sends the subpoena officially signed and all that stuff to a Trump lawyer. And here's where the fun begins. So at 1.25, Trump talks to his lawyers about the subpoena. At 3.44, our man Walt Nauta gets a text from Trump employee number three that Trump wants him to return, wants Nauta to go back to Mar-a-Lago immediamente, no, no, without delay. Now, it's interesting because Nauta was supposed to travel with Trump the next day to go to Illinois, I think I heard, and that is quickly canceled for him. Mm -hmm. So at five o'clock that day, this is again, Friday, June 24th, Nauta changes his travel plan. He immediately texts the IT, the head of IT for Mar-a-Lago. And this is a guy named Yusil Tavares. We've talked about him uh, before in previous shows. So he texts Tavares to see if he's going to be around that weekend. A minute or two later, he texts Dale Oliveira to see if he's around that weekend. And then they speak on the phone for a few minutes. Um, later that night, just before 7 p.m., De Oliveira texts Tavares and says they will need, he and Nauta will need to talk to him tomorrow. Um, and so the whole thing is lining up, right? The final text that night is Nauta telling a friend that he won't be traveling to Illinois because he had a family emergency. And then he has these little emojis that say like, you know, shush, don't talk about it. So Saturday, now we're into the next day, Nauta, probably first flight down there. He arrives at Mar-a-Lago from Bedminster, and he goes straight from the airport, meets with De Oliveira on Saturday. Now, De Oliveira also tells Mar-a-Lago employee number five, who apparently is a valet, that Nauta is coming, but he wants to keep it secret. Uh, and he also, De Oliveira, tells this employee that Nauta is going to need to talk to, or I'm sorry, that Nauta wants De Oliveira to talk to Tavares. Okay, so that's Saturday. On Monday, so nothing happens on Sunday. Everybody takes the day off, I presume. Monday, June 27th, 2022, De Oliveira goes to the IT office where Tavares is working. And he asks him to step out to have a conversation. Um, we hear about this conversation, which is interesting because we would only know about it from a live witness. 
There's no record of it, right? There's no indication of electronic surveillance or anything like that here. So this, I think, Unless is a strong- wore a wire. <laughs> yeah, which I would love. I mean, That would please, be so but, sick. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, oh, that's taking me back. But um, nevertheless, <laughs> we know this probably because we know that Tavares has been interviewed. He's probably been interviewed a lot. And I think one of the uh, assumptions we can make at the end of this is that Tavares is probably- probably cooperating with the prosecutors, which will make his association with Stanley Woodward, his attorney, a little bit awkward. Since, <laughs> awkward. Uh, Woodward still represents, <laughs> you know, every other Trumpish defendant who's not Trump, I guess is how I would well, describe it. Well, and, and Nauda too. Now they have conflicting things, but- um, Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we'll that's a problem. We'll see if they address that, but- uh, yeah, but yeah, and also I have I have a feeling that uh, Tavares is cooperating based on what he tells De La Vera during this conversation, right? Yeah, he is on this the side of the righteous, which is always a, you know a strong suggestion that the person you're hearing from is uh, cooperating. But in any case, they step out. Uh, they have this conversation. De La Vera says the conversation is just between them. Keep it secret. He asks Tavares how many days the security footage was retained. So. From the cameras, how how long do you keep those recordings? Tavares replies he believes it's about 45 days. De La Vera then says, quote, the boss wanted the server deleted. Tavares replies to that that he does not know how to delete the server, and even if he did, he doesn't think he would have the rights. Now, rights, I think in this context, he means like access, right? Rights, Administrative yeah. rights, exactly. Tavares says De La Vera would have to reach out to the security supervisor at the Trump Organization. Now, Allison, I don't know who that would be. Maybe a calamari. Um, I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> calamari A or calamari B. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Big calamari or little cal- calamari. One of the, yeah, one of the calamaris. Um, they were both questioned by a uh, special counsel. Yeah. So we know that they uh, at least were spoken to. Yeah. So so Tavares kind of gives him the brush off, right, with this answer. And then Dale Oliveira comes back and says, well, the boss wants the server deleted. And then he says, what are we going to do? Hmm. And then, I and mean, then we don't know what, <laughs> there's yeah, more I to hear, that conversation and I wish yeah. I knew what it was. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I hear you. You don't know how to do it. I hear you. You don't think you have the rights to do it. What I'm saying to you is the boss wants it done. I have listened to hundreds upon maybe thousands of hours of organized crime figures talking on uh, audio and telephones and all kinds of other things. That is exactly what you hear. Oh, yeah, you, I get it. You don't want to do it. I get it. You're not available. Now go do it. <laughs> when your response is basically, I don't care that you can't, don't know how, don't know where it is. Go get it done because the boss wants it done. There's a pretty clear message being delivered there. Yeah. So then it makes me wonder, were they able to somehow do something, you know, just Olivera Sonata? De Oliveras and Nauda, were they able to do something to wreck the security footage? Because this is all in June, end of June, right? Yeah. And yep. the, the pool incident doesn't happen until October. Uh, but here's something that I, I want to think about. I have to think about this because there is stuff in this superseding indictment where Jack Smith says that they went with a flashlight down a hall and that yeah. they went 
here and that they went to these bushes to an adjacent property and then back through the shrubbery up to the thing. It's all like dun 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 Yeah. I just picture them in like ski masks with shoe polish under their eyes. But like that seemingly has to come from security camera footage. And so yeah. if you want to get like inception here, because we know that destroying the tapes is covering up the cover up. But what if the draining of the pool into the server room was to destroy the tapes of Oliveris and Nada trying to destroy the tapes of the is it, <laughs> is it possible that three times they realized, oh my gosh, there's tapes of us doing all these bad things? Like, dudes, they're your cameras. I mean, it's not like you found the government's camera hidden in the picture frame. I mean, and I, and the secrecy around it is fascinating to me. So we had that note early on when he's coming down and De Oliveira tells some other Mar-a-Lago employee, the valet, hey, Nauta's coming, but don't tell anyone. It's a secret. So later on Monday, this is after the De Oliveira conversations with Tavares, where he's trying to twist his arm into deleting the server. About 106 that day, De Oliveira walks, as it says in the indictment, through the bushes to meet with Nauta on a, quote, adjacent property. Like, it's so secret that Nauta won't even come on the grounds. Is that because he doesn't want to come through the, he doesn't want to come through the gate? He, he doesn't, doesn't want, want to be get seen on by security? security cameras. <laughs> he doesn't want any record of him being on the property when this, this stuff is taking place. So, so De Oliveira goes through the bushes, meets with Nauta, leaves back through the bushes, goes back to the IT office, does something, then walks back along the northern uh, side of the property through the bushes and meets with Nauta again. That's so weird. After, like, why is yeah. that in there? What was he doing? Jack knows. He does. What's in there? And is there something more to come? The surreptitious Nauta de Oliveira meetings through the bushes. That's why I'm like, <laughs> is that the d- drowning the server room? Is because okay. they were trying to get rid of that footage. That and but he mentions it, so it's relevant to something. It's relevant. It's re- It's a great scene setter because it really shows these guys going to exorbitant lengths to hide themselves, and particularly Nauta. It's so. It, if this is the length that Nauta is going to, to avoid even stepping on the property of the place where he works, right? It's simply because it's it's consciousness of guilt. It's knowing you're involved in something. You can't have a record of it. You don't ever want anyone to know you're doing this stuff. And that simply might be it. That just might be to show that he yeah. knew that he's sneaking around because he's totally innocent. Like, that's And of course, the crowning uh, moment, I guess, in this Monday of nonsense is at 355. Trump calls De Oliveira and they talk for three and a half minutes. Mm. I want to thank you. I know you're loyal. Now I made the, I made that up, but you can imagine that's that's some sort of attaboy conversation because De Oliveira has really put himself right in this mix with all of his uh, nonsense on Monday. Yeah, yeah, and then we have the loyalty conversation. And this is interesting because of the timing, right? This is right around the time Judge Aileen Cannon starts to get a hold of this case and puts a big pause on it for a couple of months. But on August 26th, uh, and now, you know, we're talking about like a full two months later. A week or two after the search warrant, right? Wasn't the search warrant like August 8th or something? Yeah, August 8th. Yeah. So you're it's like three weeks, two weeks after the search warrant. Mm-hmm. Nada calls Trump employee five. And says words to the effect of, someone just wants to make sure Carlos is good. Which, 
also makes me think employee five is a cooperating witness because of the words said words to the effect of Uh, employee five told Nauta that De Oliveira was loyal and wouldn't do anything to affect his relationship with Trump. And then that same day, employee five just chatted him all up on the signal chat group with Nauta and a PAC representative that De Oliveira was loyal. So I guess there was maybe some sort of test between (laughs) those two points. Or other people who were worried about De Oliveira's loyalty, this PAC representative being one of them, which that's weird. So then the employee, employee five went on to hopped onto a signal chat group. So they've got these signal chats, um, the DOJ does. And and then that same day, the very same day, uh, once the signal chat goes out from employee five that he's cool, he's loyal, Trump calls him personally and tells him he'd get him a lawyer. Yes. There you go. Sealing the loyalty for all time. Um, so Dale Vera, as we know, participated in a voluntary interview on January 13th, 2023 at his home with FBI agents. Uh, he was asked if he knew anything about moving boxes or if he saw any boxes or helped move them within Mar-a-Lago or from the White House. And, you know, Dale Vera, not a patient man, apparently. <laughs> he doesn't even let the investigators finish the question until he launches into, nope, no, never. Never saw nothing. Nope. 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 Just totally nope. shut him down. Of course, we know at that point, whatever uh, portion of the surveillance they have shows De Oliveira <laughs> carting boxes around. So they know literally in the interview, they're like, all right, we got this guy because he's lying about a material fact, which puts you right in the crosshairs of uh, 18 USC 1001. And lo and behold, he's charged with that in this new superseding indictment. Yeah. And you might have even had Nauda in one of his two or three moments of truth talking to the FBI, you know, how he said, oh, Trump told me mm-hmm. to move those boxes. Uh, and he, you know, might have had testimony that his buddy was there helping him. Uh, his his lawyer, John Irving, uh, told everybody, oh, he just was walking by and saw his friend Walt Nauta moving heavy boxes and just offered to help. It was out of the kindness of his heart. And we were all like, so his kindness is kind of what blew up this whole case? Like, okay. <laughs> Interesting. Kindness at Mar-a-Lago. No, I, so far, the only little hero here is Tavares. <laughs> he was like, yeah. I'm not going to erase your tapes, bro. <laughs> Get the fuck out of here. Call the, call the calamaris. Um, for sure. Yeah. For sure. So, uh, and, you know, we can also discuss the impact of the attempt to delete the security footage that, you know, that it has on the case as a whole. I I sort of talked about that and you sort of talked about that, but I just, I can't reiterate enough. um, The, like we thought this indictment was like a nine out of 10 or a 10 out of 10, but now it's just shot. I, I didn't even think there was room for improvement, but here we are. It's an 11 out of 10 now. I mean, like, think about it in comparison to the other. They love to make these comparisons like, oh, well, what about Joe Biden? What about Mike Pence? Okay. And the answer to that is, of course, well, Joe Biden found some documents, shouldn't have had them. They're in the wrong place. Immediately called up the government, gave them back. And then when he was asked if they could search his house and all these other places, they said, sure, come on over. So that's where the, the distinctions begin between Biden and Trump, who fought with NARA for a year, gave back some, but not all and then went into all these other machinations to hide what he still had. Well, now you take it up an entire level, right? So not only, I mean, in, the, in this false equivalence between Biden and Trump, Trump has now taken it to another level. He's not only 
kept the documents, refused to give them back, lied about having them, hid them from his attorney and from the DOJ. Now he's actively involved in destroying evidence of his own malfeasance. Like it ratchets the guilty knowledge to an astronomical level. There is not a chance on earth that if anyone else was charged under these facts, plead guilty. This case never goes, it doesn't go another day. Mm. They plead guilty immediately. You do not go to trial on a case like this. Of course, that's not going to happen here because Donald Trump is who he is and he's running for president <laughs> and all those other things. He feels he feels like there's a chance at dodging this if he uh, if he can just win the White House again. But uh, it's just hard to explain how overwhelming this case is from having looked at many of these over many years uh, doing national security investigations. Uh, this thing, this thing is a, is a bear. Yeah, it's going to be impossible. Um, all right, we have to take a quick break, and we're going to be right back with our friend Brian Greer and our new segment, Under Seal. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Happy to be joined today for our new segment, Under Seal. Filed under seal. 
the uh, former associate general counsel for the CIA, SEPA expert, our friend Brian Greer. Brian, hello. How are you? Great. Hey, Brian. How are you? Thanks for having me back. Yeah, it's really, really great to see you again. Um, I'm very excited to talk to you because we've had a little bit of movement in the Mar-a-Lago documents case, the classified documents case this week. Um, first of all, we, we've we've gone over uh, the indictment, what's what's happened, the superseding stuff in the first two segments here. But I really wanted, I couldn't wait to get your top line thoughts on on these superseding indictments, just off, just you know, to start with, and then we'll get into the SEPA considerations. Yeah, one thought I had was one annoying thing Twitter commentators do, myself included, is they always pat themselves on the back when they get a prediction right, and they never mention when they get a prediction wrong. <laughs> well, I expected <laughs> as soon as she set the trial schedule, things would get very boring in this case, uh, and it would all go under seal, and and we wouldn't be talking and have that much to talk about. Obviously, immediately proven totally wrong by that with this really jaw-dropping news um, on the on the tapes destruction front, the Ron document part not that surprising, I think. Um, but on the the tapes piece uh, with the tapes destruction, you know, obviously there's the saying the cover up is worse than the crime. Here yep. we have a cover up of the cover up, <laughs> right? Like the cover destruction of the obstruction. Yeah, the obstruction square moving the boxes, and then they tried to cover that up. So thinking from my lens of how does this actually affect the classified part of the case. You know, you think of that, what we talked about last time of the education of Eileen Cannon, Eileen Cannon, you know, here again, right? This isn't about classified information, but she is seeing that, look, I put my neck out for this person back in August and September, embarrassed myself for him. And now I am learning the true, just totally, uh, you know, jaw dropping extent of this obstructive behavior, clearly showing evidence of guilt on his own part. And is that going to impact her rulings on this other stuff? Is she going to be less willing to go out and stick his neck out for him? So I think that's a big part of this potentially. Um, on the Ron document side, you know, again, not that surprising given what we knew from the tape recording. Uh, I think the only question is why wasn't this charged initially, right? Like what new evidence or information did they get? There was some reporting that they couldn't really identify the document with certainty. Did something happen where they got more certainty about that? As Andy knows, sometimes I, sometimes these indictments bring people out of the woodwork to say, oh, yeah. I want to come cooperate or or tell you about this that I forgot about or or have come to Jesus about and I want to tell you about. So maybe that happened. Um, yeah. Do you think it's possible, Brian, because I know a lot of commentators are speculating about this, that they had it, but they didn't have the Intel community's authorization to use it? I don't think so. Looking at the, the the description of the document, it's only top secret. There's not um, additional SCI markings about it that would indicate that it came from human sources or sensitive collection platforms. It was probably, you know, high level summary of what you might do to invade Iran, which is obviously tremendously sensitive. Sure. Probably a little out of date at this point, three years later. Um, yeah. So I, I doubt that was the reason. I don't know why it was really. What is interesting is we now have sort of another what I would call like a fallback category of documents. There was the, what everyone thought he would be charged with, which is the, the documents they located during the search warrant. We all knew yep. that would be the focus. I was surprised though, that they had in the indictment, 10 documents that he returned to the grand jury subpoena. I was a little surprised at first, but then I thought, oh, that's really smart. These people are smarter than all of us. If she, for some reason holds that there was no probable cause for the search warrant and excludes all that, they have a fallback set of documents. 
Now they have another fallback set of documents. The problem with the grand jury documents is the evidence of intent of his willfulness may be lower with those. He returned them. Maybe he didn't know they were there. This document, because they have the recording, even though he returned it to the NARA, they have that recording showing that he knew he wasn't supposed to have that document. So that's right. another category of sort of backup documents that's going to be really strong for DOJ. It's so interesting. And also that Iran document, the, this which I, I, I'm i assuming is the third set, that was returned in January of 2022. That was returned to the National Archives pursuant to them spending 18 months trying to get uh, some stuff back. So talk a little bit about, because um, you, you had mentioned that it, it might be a little bit weaker in that third group. Talk about that because I, I know also it can also be stronger because we just have a tape recording of him saying, I have this classified document and presumably a witness or two who can confirm or evidence that has been developed that that was the document he had in his hand during that tape recording. Yeah, it's exactly what you said. I, I always expected there to be no charges for the documents that he returned to NAR initially, even though I think they could have, right? But he did the right thing, sort of, eventually returned them. He kept them too long, but he still returned them voluntarily. So the evidence there of willfulness may be normally lower, because again, he might say, which Joe Biden will say and what Mike Pence will say, which is, I didn't know I had these documents, right? So that would be a defense DOJ would be worried about. But this document, because they have the recording, him showing it to other people, admitting that it's classified and that he doesn't have the authority to declassify it, it is the exception to that rule of that of not charging those NARA documents. And, and I think it does make a lot of sense to charge it. I totally agree with that. And I think it gives them the added dimension of dissemination, right? He's clearly communicating the sum and substance of that of that document to the people in the room. You have the icing on the cake with uh, potentially a witness who's there who would recognize it, who'd say, oh yeah, that's the one I saw him wave around or put down on his desk or whatever he did with it. So it's it really kind of closes the circle on that episode. You've got the audio recording, which is amazing. You've got his comments about not having the the authority to be able to declassify it, admitting it's still classified. And now you have all tied back to the document itself. It kind of eliminates his attorney's ability to to challenge like the entry of the audio recording as evidence, which could, you could have made the argument that that's overly prejudicial if you weren't charging that event, that episode. Now they're charging it. They have the evidence. There's absolutely no way the recording stays out or the witnesses don't testify about it. Yeah. I think this might actually trigger additional motions in limine, um, <laughs> you know, after this, really, like, as a matter of law, uh, this is not a thing anymore and you can't use that as a defense That's um, right. based on that. So I think that that, uh, again, would increase the stuff that has to be done between now and the trial date. And that's what I wanted to uh, also ask you about, Brian, is we haven't talked since it got scheduled in May. The last time we talked is like he's he, he went for December, probably shooting for the spring, uh, hoping to that she'll split the baby. And she did. She uh, in fact, she actually I even asked if she could bring it into March, if Alvin Bragg would be willing to move his trial. But she ended up uh, with May. And then, of course, there there can and probably likely will be more uh, delay after that. But we have 10 months now, uh, which is quite a bit of breathing room. And I was wondering your thoughts on that and also your thoughts on uh, the government's filing as to why these superseding indictments have will not have any bearing on, on the on the new trial date of May uh, 2024. Yeah, well, I think on the trial date itself not being moved by the superseding indictment, 
that makes total sense to me. I don't think on the tapes destruction element or attempted destruction, classified information isn't really relevant to that charge. So that's pretty easy. On the Iran document, that was a document that was probably going to be turned over in classified discovery already, right? So I don't think that sets it back. And again, under her schedule, classified discovery doesn't actually start till September 7th. So I don't think anything is going to be, we we have over a month until that happens, until we get to that point. So I don't think it'll set back anything at all. Um, as for the trial date overall, it's, it's, I think, very sensible to set a trial date for May. That's, I think, enough time if DOJ has everything in order, which they say they do, which would be the normally the biggest delay is just DOJ being able to push out its discovery and meet all its obligations there. It appears to be ready there. So if it can meet those obligations, May seems sensible. Uh, some people pointed out, and I agree, that she allowed way too much time to litigate the SEPA Section 3 protective order. She allowed over a month to litigate that. Part of that's DOJ's fault. They should have proposed it earlier. I don't know why they waited so long. They didn't give enough time to Trump's team to review it. She called them out on that, I think, you know, somewhat defensively. But that said, under her schedule, again, discovery is not starting till September. And But putting that aside, the full SCI clearances aren't going to be ready until about 40, 45 days from now. Most of the discovery is SCI. So most of it wouldn't go out to those clearances were done anyway. So I don't think this super protective order thing is going to set things back that much. The, the landmine, though, which I tweeted about is the very end of her order, which is called the SEPA Section 6C litigation. So in Section 6 of SEPA is when you get ready for trial. Under 6A, which is a separate element, you litigate the use, relevance, and admissibility of classified information at trial. Normally, what you would do in a motion to eliminate, you figure out, okay, this is admissible, this is relevant, all that kind of stuff. Then you say, okay, here's our universe of trial evidence, we are going to, under Section 6C, decide the government's going to propose certain protective measures. We're going to redact this thing. We're going to do this substitution. We're going to have a witness use the silent witness rule and testify in generalities about the document. That's all done under Section 6C. Well, she put has that concluding about three weeks before trial, which I don't blame her. Under DOJ's schedule for December, that's where it was. Now, the truth is they had no choice, given that kind of crazy fast schedule that they proposed, they had no choice but to put it there. But I'm sure they would love to go back to her and say, now that we have so much time before trial, thank you for that time. Now that we have so much time, <laughs> we really need to conclude that earlier because that's not enough time because it could be two weeks before trial before she makes her rulings. And then DOJ has two weeks to get ready. If they want to appeal anything, there's not enough time to appeal before trial. So it's going to automatically set the trial date back. It, it's just not at all what DOJ would want. They would love to have that conclude about two months before trial. And you know what? If you look at the schedule, there is time. The 6A litigation ends in January. And then there's this gap of like two, a little over two months before the 6C litigation starts. So I would expect, I wouldn't be surprised if they go back to her and say, we know we proposed something like this, but now that we have more time, Let's move that 6C litigation up to February so we can be ready for trial. They absolutely should do that. I don't know if they will, but that's the biggest sort of landmine lurking in her schedule. That's fascinating. I mean, it, you know, you can see, you could definitely see that 6C portion as being um, generating the most decisions that are likely to be appealed. 
And mm. that's where your that's where the delay starts to turn from days or weeks into months. I yep. mean, you know, when you throw things into the appellate court process, you really lose all control. And again, not her fault. I think she's ignorant on this stuff. And she just looked at DJ's schedule and said, okay, I'll follow that. And she just should, didn't know better to not do that. Right, because the alternate would be she's so shrewd in her protection of Trump that she kept, she knew she could keep that and put it there and there would be delay. Yeah, I don't know that she's competent enough to to be that shrewd. But um, let's go back to SEPA Section 3 and the protective order. Uh, because Trump had uh, made a motion, he actually literally asked the court to be able to talk about <laughs> classified material outside outside of a skiff. He wants to talk about it at Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> or Lago. I, I, I cannot believe that he they made this motion with a straight face. You've already talked a little bit, Brian, about how the impact of the new charges is really a bad look for the judge. And that is a factor in every trial, right? You want to keep your side and the way you're litigating the case and the way you conduct yourself in court on the judge's good side. Man, he, so he lost some points being very credibly alleged to have engaged in blatant uh, evidence destruction. Now he comes in and says, excuse me, can I just have all that stuff back? I promise I'll keep it in the ballroom or in the shower like I used to. I mean, what what on earth were they thinking? I mean, this has got to be one of those moments where the judge is just like, are, are you kidding? This is exactly why you're here, because you can't have that stuff outside of a skiff. Did this not occur to you at this point? That might be his it, defense. <laughs> yeah, it, it is mind-boggling. It, it shows, you know, I think Trump now has probably the best set of lawyers he's had, which is a low bar, admittedly. That's yeah. a relative statement. But you have to know that they did not want to make this argument, that he is forcing them to make this argument. So that's a bad sign for his defense in this case, that he is basically overruling his attorneys on these on these calls and doing exactly what Andy said, which is making arguments in front of the judge who should be sympathetic towards them that is are probably going to upset her and make her much less sympathetic. So it's a really bad move to get off on this foot with her. Um yeah. And I, and I mean, obviously, I think she was going to reject it. They might try to narrow their argument a little bit when they fully litigate it to say, you know, oh, we could have the Secret Service come in and make a little skiff just like we had when he was president. Right. Um, but he's not president anymore. He doesn't have a full Secret Service contingent anymore. He still has one, but not to the same extent. So I, I think that'll be rejected. And it does remind me, you know, Andy, I'm sure you heard when you were in government. I know I did at CIA. You know, he did have briefings, classified briefings at Bedminster and Mar-a-Lago quite frequently. And you would hear stories coming out of those that would really make you shudder of just normal safety considerations not being followed, him bringing people into the room to order Diet Cokes or milkshakes in the middle of a very sensitive briefing. So it is not surprising at all that he's continuing to, to do this. Yeah, you look at the lengths that the other, and they're now admittedly these people weren't the president, but the head of the CIA, the head of the FBI, other principals had to go to to be able to work with TS material in their homes. They literally build skiffs in those people's homes. They improve the the structure. They they deploy all the countermeasures and everything else that's required for that. And then you have to sit in that little tiny phone booth of a room that they've built in your basement or someplace else for hours on end working on the computer or doing whatever you do. So those stories out of Mar-a-Lago about like showing, you know, the 
the North Korean intelligence to the Japanese prime minister on the veranda as other other, other diners took photographs with cell phones. It's just, it's hair raising. If you've worked in the intelligence community, you saw that stuff, you're just like, oh my God, I, I, I can't believe this is happening. Yeah. Act, actual pearl clutching. Um, finally, uh, Brian, there was some reporting this week from Zoe Tillman, Bloomberg, and she picked up on comments the Department of Justice has made about whether it will invoke SEPA Section 4 at all um, in its schedule. And it said, if necessary, right? And at the hearing, Jay Bratt said it would, it, its use would be fairly minimal, I believe were the words that he used. And we'll cover SEPA Section 4 in more detail in a future segment. But first, can you just give a brief like overview, a uh, refresher of SEPA Section 4? And second, what do you think the DOJ is up to by using this qualified language? Yeah, so SEPA Section 4, just very briefly, is where the government has identified a universe of discoverable classified material that they would normally just hand over to the defense. But some of it, for various reasons, is, is too sensitive to hand over or is maybe not relevant and helpful to their preparation of a defense. And so the government, which is sort of the legal standard for discovery of classified information. And so the government would go to the court and propose, hey, there's certain things we want to withhold. They're not relevant and helpful to the defense. Or there's certain redactions we want to make or summaries or substitutions of sensitive things. We're still going to give him a, a substitution that will allow him to prepare a defense because we have to do that. But we want to get your blessing to do that. And so that's what that process would entail. It, it normally is a laborious process. You've got to work very closely with intelligence community to do that. Um, it can slow things down quite a bit. Um, so it is interesting that they've said, look, we're going to take a minimal approach to this. I'm not that surprised that there's there's a big picture strategic question here, which is there's a playbook for these cases, SEPA cases. To what extent do you follow it and to what extent do you throw it out? And I think a lot of times it's going to make sense to throw it out a little bit. The, the Department of Justice manual on SEPA says you should use Section 4 to the maximum extent possible. The reason DOJ normally does that is because if you shrink the universe of classified information that's at issue in the case, even in discovery, there's less opportunity for gray mail, right? So they're not following that here. Um, so the question is why? I think one is just speed. That makes good sense. You normally wouldn't start turning every, anything that has to be redacted you wouldn't turn it over until the court has blessed your section four motion, right? Because you don't want to give them a redacted version of a document and then have to come back after the judges rule differently and give them a less redacted version, right? Then you've just signaled this thing where you redacted before is super sensitive. So they know to zero in on that. So you would normally wait until the judge rules in your section four um, until you turn it over. So I think it shows that they're, they want to move quickly and that makes a lot of sense. It also shows, I think, that the universe of discoverable material may be pr pretty small. Um, and we can talk real quickly about what that would normally be. Obviously, the charged documents would be provided in discovery. I think most of even the uncharged documents that are, were at Mar-a-Lago would be provided in discovery. Any classification reviews that the intelligence community did of those documents are going to be provided in discovery. And then I don't think they did a formal damage assessment, and we can talk about why that is, but... Um, we did. We did. And the last time you talked about that already. Yeah. So that to the extent there was any damage mitigation efforts that might be, they said in one filing that there's classified information about other declassification efforts that Trump made. So I think they're going to show there that he did follow a process. Sometimes that's going to be provided in discovery. Um, they'll probably search. Did any of this stuff ever leak to the press? 
were there crimes reports about it? So they'll search for that. And if, if there were, they'll produce that. So that's sort of the universe. There are theories that will take you beyond that in terms of discovery, but I think they're clearly signaling they have a pretty narrow universe and narrow theory of what's discoverable in this case. No, I think they said it was roughly 1,400 pages of classified documents. Yeah, yeah. And I think part of that is they knew from the beginning of this investigation this was going to be a high-profile case, and they probably put the word out, even for things like the classification reviews, don't create a lot of unnecessary paper, a lot of unnecessary emails. What I bet they did even was made an office at the DNI, kept the documents there, and if you were a classification expert from the CIA, you probably had to go there and look at them and do your oh, for sure to sort of limit the amount of paper created. So it's pretty smart. I, the last thing I would add is not totally out of the woodwork, though, with Section 4, because Trump is also going to make his own discovery request. They're going to say, thanks for all this discovery you gave us. We think there's additional things that are relevant. They're going to issue document requests to the government. Those will probably be litigated. And if Cannon grants those, there may be additional, more sensitive information that DOJ does have to apply Section 4 to later down the road. Understood. Well, thank you so much for explaining that to us. I know we're going to have a, a deeper dive into SEPA Section 4 as, as time goes on, and I look forward to having you back. Uh, Andy, did you have any final questions that uh, you wanted to get out before? No, we... I think I, I think we've covered it well for today. I think this whole process is just really starting to ramp up. So we're going to have to, unfortunately, Brian, we're going to have to drag you in uh, <laughs> many more times as we go along. But you've given us a lot to think about today. So thanks very much for coming on. Thank you. Always happy to help. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA as a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry... We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in an Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. 
Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. All right. All eyes were on the Prettyman Federal Courthouse in D.C. this week since Donald got the target letter we covered last week. But then we got those superseding charges in Florida. But a couple of things happened. Trump's lawyers met with the DOJ on Thursday. We'd been waiting for that meeting as it's one of the steps that we saw in the espionage obstruction case right before an indictment. Um, Sources say that Trump's lawyers were told to expect an indictment during that meeting. Um, The grand jury met after that all day. I don't know what they were doing, but they were meeting until five. And uh, they may have voted something under seal. We haven't heard about it. Trump hasn't truthed about it. Uh, And we don't have a press. Our our next steps are Trump will will rant about it on Truth Social, and then the special counsel will announce a press conference. (laughs) That's kind of the two Mm -hmm. next two things we're looking for. They meet again on Tuesday. Uh, I'm expecting probably next week we'll see some movement on this. Uh, I'm not sure how it will look. But law enforcement has been told to prepare for possible violence in D.C. Um, And again, you know, I I know that everyone's talking about this, but the significance of this particular indictment uh, cannot be overstated. This was the this was a coup. So, I think yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think I'm kind of surprised it didn't happen yesterday, to be perfectly honest, because they had a bunch of prosecutors in the courthouse and no obvious witnesses. And that's usually the day, you know, the last day when they're wrapping things up and reading the draft indictment, that sort of stuff. So they may have. doesn't it may have. But the, apparently there was a I heard reported somewhere there was a, the clerk of the court said that no indictments had been turned in yesterday. A distraction. So everyone could get out of the building safe and go home and file. I yeah, know. it's pot. Who knows? Like, I thought that was an odd thing for the clerk to be answering questions well, at all. It was also odd but- that they kept meeting for another two hours after the somebody, after Gerstein reported the clerk told him that. Yeah. So. Yeah. So the whole thing is, is a little bit weird, but they are officially back on Tuesday. Uh, I don't think they're going to be brought back in on off days. That's very hard to do with a grand jury because grand jurors, unlike a trial jury, which sits, you know, constantly until the trial is over. Uh, grand jurors, on a, uh, once they're impaneled on a grand jury, they sit on the grand jury for months, like a couple of months. And so they only do it like one or two days a week. And that's because those folks have jobs and lives and they need to be able to schedule their lives around the, the two days a week that they're in the grand jury room. So I don't, it's hard to bring them back when, uh, on an off day. And I don't think they'll do that. But I think we're looking at days. Um, yeah. It could very well come this this week. Could come Tuesday, if not Thursday. I think is probably likely. Yeah, I agree. I concur. Um, also, prosecutors are scrutinizing a February 2020 Oval Office meeting. That's when uh, then President Trump praised improvements to the U.S. security apparatus for elections. He was so encouraged by federal efforts to protect election systems in February of 2020. He suggested that the FBI and the DHS, Department of Homeland Security, hold a press conference to take credit for how awesome they are. And it was only a couple of weeks later that he started saying the mail-in ballots and the, this. if I lose, yeah. it's only because it's rigged. But during that meeting, Trump also learned that Russia preferred him in the 2020 election to Joe Biden. And that led to the firing of the ODNI McGuire and the appointment of Rick Grinnell. And then also it makes sense to me that they're scrutinizing this meeting because this is right around the time our friend Johnny McEntee, who has testified before the grand jury, started weeding out non-loyal Trump, uh, you know, or, or, you know, appointees that were non-loyal to Trump. 
And it kind of sets up the firing of Krebs because they were asked Chris Krebs would be an excellent witness for uh, for the prosecution. And it's like, oh, uh, why did they fire you if you did so well in February that they wanted to have a, you know, a press conference touting your amazing election security? What changed? <laughs> uh, so I think it's it makes sense that they're scrutinizing this meeting. That's that's right. I, it, it's interesting. I don't think it substantively changes um, the proof against Trump in this case. I think it's yet another data point uh, that the government will point to to show that he actually knew the difference between real election fraud and security problems and none. Um, but it's it's also so far in time before the events around January sixth that you know, Trump could say, oh, well, I changed my mind after that. Or I was told many things about fraud that had happened in the election. And so therefore, you know, I just didn't know at that time. So the meeting is interesting and it's ironic, but it's, I don't think it's hugely relevant. No, I think it's just, like you said, another, da- another data point to, to, yep. to counter uh, the defense that, you know, he really truly thought the election was stolen and doesn't understand election security. Yeah. Um, and also we've got uh, news, at least two more witnesses are scheduled to speak with special counsel prosecutors in early August, including fraudulent electors, Bernie Carrick, uh, and another unnamed Trump lawyer who worked with the fraudulent elector scheme. We also have reports that Brian Kemp has met with Jack Smith, so he's just covering every single base that he possibly can. Yeah. And back to Bernie Carrick, hundreds of documents that Bernie Carrick had been withholding uh, due to attorney-client privilege have been handed over to Jack Smith's team. Apparently, um, this is from Carrick's lawyer, Parlatore, said that the Trump campaign waived privilege on these. And I was like, well, that's weird. Why is he just waving privilege left and right? It did it for the Rudy Giuliani discovery in the Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman case, too. But Lisa Rubin, again, she makes these great points. Um, she says that this is possible because he might plan to use an advice of counsel defense. And if you use an advice of counsel defense for why you thought you could overturn the election or have fraudulent electors or throw out the real electors, you waive attorney-client privilege. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. I think there's another angle to this too. Like Bernie Carrick was Rudy Giuliani's kind of chief investigator in Rudy's efforts to drum up nonsensical fraud. And so what those papers are going to be are the results of people who made complaints about election fraud, none of which, of course, turned out to be true. But these are like results of interviews and things like that. Um, It is possible in his defense, which will likely be, I really thought there was fraud, they may drag some of these people in to testify just as examples of the information that was coming into him via Bernie Carrick to Rudy Giuliani to him substantiating or kind of bolstering his view that there was real fraud. So there's probably not a lot in these documents for prosecutors, except if these people come in and testify, they're going to be cross-examined. And so the prosecutors will have had their the paperwork behind those people, basically the results of the interviews, transcripts, whatever they have, and they'll be ready to kind of tear them apart and show that, you know, there wasn't really any fraud there. So this is all like, this will be Trump's efforts to kind of put something on the other side of the scale. Remember on the prosecutor side of the scale, you have the dozens of people who told him there were no fraud, his own attorneys who told him, his campaign people who told him, the companies that he hired to find fraud who came back and said there was none. So you got to expect you'll see 
the Trump team put up some witnesses who will say, no, no, I really thought there was fraud. And that's probably some of this pool. Hmm. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, because you do have to have that. You do have to produce that. And you have to tie up every loose end. All right, let's pivot to listener questions. Do we have any listener questions this week? We do. We have a couple then. And I'm going um, to Scotland for a listener question from Sue. It's kind of interesting. We had a couple of uh, couple of people uh, who wrote in from outside the U.S. And Sue says, could you please explain why, if Judge Eileen Cannon is so inexperienced in trials of this nature and importance, another more experienced judge is not automatically drafted to take the case? Uh, in addition, after being overruled on appeal for her last judgment on Trump, would Jack Smith have been able to protest and request a different judge if he had so wanted? Um, so thank you, Sue, very much for your question, and thanks for listening. For your first question, so in this country, the way we select judges um, is really random. So the judges in a particular uh, federal district, they all work in the courthouse. They all have the same powers. They all are appointed for life. They're all very, they're considered to be equals, even the newest with the most senior, except for one judge, the chief judge. That's the judge that kind of runs the whole judge scene in the courthouse. And the chief judge is responsible for um, for coming up with the assignment process. And the one that they use in pr pretty much every courthouse is just a random, like a roll of the dice. That's how judges get assigned cases. So we don't actually assign cases based on experience. Oh, you know, this judge had a case like this before. That would be a good one for her. Nothing like that. It would make a lot of sense, but that's not the way we do it. <laughs> and then finally, your second question about whether or not Jack Smith could have protested um, the fact that Judge Cannon got overruled on appeal simply means that the appellate court did not agree with her interpretation of the law. And it doesn't mean, it's, it's not considered any kind of a statement that she has, you know, bad judgment or that she is anyway biased for uh, Donald Trump as opposed to the prosecutors. It's simply a thought of as a disagreement on the uh, interpretation of law. And since they are the higher court, their, their interpretation uh, rules the day. So the only way Jack Smith could have protested the judge is if he'd had some really, really strong evidence that, um, that the judge had a conflict or was in, for some obvious reason biased uh, in favor of the defendant against the prosecution. And that doesn't really exist in this case. So that's why, uh, likely why he didn't make any sort of objections. Yeah. Agreed. And then also those appeals take time and he wanted to get this done as quickly as possible. Yeah. Good point. Good point. All right. Thank you so much for your questions. If you have questions for me or Andy or Brian Greer, if you have a question, we can put it in the in the the SEPA hopper. You can uh, send it to us at hello at MullerSheWrote.com. Just make sure to put Jack in the subject line so that we don't lose it with all of our other emails. That's how we find these and gather them is by searching for Jack in the subject line. Again, that's hello at MullerSheWrote.com. Uh, this was a long show. We had a lot to talk about. Gosh. Uh, huge, huge show, big like, show. Like we do every week, what are we going to talk about next week? <laughs> I'm not worried about it anymore. There's always plenty. And we're only going, we're still going up the mountain here, right? Like yeah. there's every week more volume. Um, so this week will be really interesting. Let's see what comes out of that DC grand jury, if anything. And uh, either way, Allison, we will be here to talk about it all. Yep, we'll be here to talk about it all. I've been Allison Gill. And I am Andy McCabe. And you're listening to Jack. 
Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA as a first-time lawyer. I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th or get it ad free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.